A few weeks ago when we started this journey in the Old Testament book of Job, I mentioned that one of the issues that will eventually confront every person of faith is the reality of evil in this world, the question of how all of the suffering we experience and we observe on planet earth can coexist with the God revealed to us in the Bible. A God who is altogether good and altogether just and altogether powerful. Now this is not a new dilemma, of course. In fact, it's a problem that God's people have been wrestling with for thousands of years. A problem that comes to the surface right here in the Old Testament book of Job. Job was a good man. A righteous man. But a man who had a lot of why questions. A man who experienced incredible suffering and hardship and pain. Over the centuries, a number of different solutions have been proposed to try to make sense of the grim reality of evil in the world. A few weeks ago, I shared with you the story of Charles Templeton, a former pastor, a former associate of Billy Graham who left the faith over this very issue. And I think in the fire of suffering, many people have been tempted to follow that same dark road away from God and away from the Christian faith. Perhaps some of us here today in this room have experienced suffering and pain in our lives to such a degree that we've begun to question whether God is truly good, whether He is truly loving, Perhaps we've even started to wonder whether God really exists at all. And I have a hunch that many people in our world who profess to be atheists are in fact people who struggle with deep anger and deep resentment towards God because of something tragic and painful that has happened in their life. Perhaps something they feel that God should have prevented. You know, sometimes it can be easier to blame God or to pretend that God doesn't exist than it is to wrestle through those difficult seasons of disappointment and pain when life just doesn't seem to make much sense. The problem of evil has driven some towards atheism, but others have not gone quite so far down the road. There are some people who would argue that God exists and that God created this world, but that God is somewhat like an absentee father. God who created us, but then abandoned us and left us to operate according to our own devices. A God who would never dare to interfere with human freedom or the laws of nature. This is a point of view known as deism. Unfortunately, it doesn't offer us a lot of comfort to believe in a God who's abandoned us and who is totally unconcerned with our lives and our suffering here on planet Earth. There are still others in our world today who attribute evil and suffering to a cosmic contest between two equal but opposite superpowers. A good power known as God, an evil power known as the devil who are locked in an ongoing power struggle for the universe. And sometimes God wins in the battle and things go well for us and sometimes God loses and the devil wins and things go poorly. On the surface, this type of a solution seems to make sense of things, but of course, we observed a couple weeks ago from our study in Job 1 and 2, the Bible does not present this picture. The Bible presents a picture of the devil as a created being who is totally under the sovereign authority of God, a created being who can do absolutely nothing in this world that God in His sovereign will does not permit. And to think of Satan as some kind of evil counterpart of God is to slip away from biblical Christianity and to slide into some form of paganism. In recent years, it's become popular among some theologians to propose another solution to the problem of evil. This point of view, sometimes known as process theology, contends that God has good intentions for the world, but ultimately that God is limited in His power and His knowledge. 
In other words, these men and women do not believe that God is sovereign over the universe. He's a God who would help us if He could, but sometimes He quite simply can't do anything to help. And although the thought of a well-intentioned but powerless deity might be appealing to some, it has absolutely no appeal to me. And it certainly does not correspond to the almighty, all-powerful, all-sovereign God we encounter on the pages of inspired Scripture. The God who inhabits the heavens and does whatever He pleases. And then finally, there are some who've suggested that evil and suffering are simply illusions that don't exist in reality. And this is the point of view you will find in many of the Eastern religions such as Buddhism or perhaps in the Gnostic cult known as Christian science. But in my view, it amounts to little more than wishful thinking. Because anyone who has spent any amount of time on this planet knows that evil and suffering are real things. In this world, people really do starve to death. People really do get raped. People really do get sick. People go to war. People lose lose loved ones in tragic ways. And to trivialize these forms of suffering as illusions that don't really exist is a serious delusion in and of itself. There are many, many inadequate solutions to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And as we open God's Word this morning and turn once again to the Old Testament book of Job, we're going to see another attempt to explain suffering in the world that is ultimately unsuccessful. It is the view that says that all suffering in this world is a form of divine punishment for personal sin, for personal wrongs that we've committed against God or against other people. Theologians often refer to this as retribution theology, but you and I probably know it better as something called karma. It's the view that you reap what you sow. If you do something bad, you can expect something bad to happen to you. If you do something good, you can expect something good to happen to you. And in a nutshell, that is the approach to evil and suffering we are going to encounter in the words of Job's three friends, an approach to suffering God's Word shows us to be totally inadequate. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 4. As I attempt to do something this morning I've never done before and probably never will do again. With God's help, we are going to cover 24 chapters of the Bible in a single sermon. And this is the first time I've ever attempted to perform a miracle. Now before you get too concerned and you think that we're going to be here all afternoon, those of you who have done your homework, Those of you who have read ahead in the book of Job will realize that chapters 4 to 27 are very repetitive. These chapters consist of three cycles of speeches given by Job and his three friends as they struggle to explain the reasons for Job's suffering and as Job defends himself against their unfair accusations and cries out to God for vindication. And so what I want to do this morning is to read for you a few representative portions of the book of Job that I think Uh, represent the overall argument of the book, and we're going to begin in chapter 4. To make it easier for you this morning, I'm going to read from the Pew Bible. You can follow along with me beginning on page 361. 361 in the blue NIV Pew Bible. We begin in chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how how you've instructed many, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who've stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees. 
But now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of His anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My eyes caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all of my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his Maker? If God places no trust in His servants, if He charges His angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dust they are broken to pieces, unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Now let's skip ahead to chapter 8, which is the speech of Job's second friend, Bildad. And then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long, Job, will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now He will rouse Himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations, find out what their fathers learned. For we were born yesterday and know nothing. Our days on earth are are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. It's like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its roots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks. It looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, the place disowns it and said, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. One final selection in chapter 19. And then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn His net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. 
He's blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among His enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my brothers. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound Him since the root of trouble lies in Him, you should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. And this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. As we consider the counsel of Job's friends and the response of Job that we've just read in these representative chapters, we're going to consider the good and the bad and the ugly in what, in what Job's three friends say to him, and also some of the good and the bad in what Job says to them and also to God. And so let's begin our time in the Word this morning with the speeches of Job's three friends whose names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I think it's fair to say the tendency of most preaching on these middle chapters of Job is to point out all of the negative, destructive, and hurtful things that these so-called friends say to Job in his greatest hour of pain. Most sermons on this part of the book hold up these three men as a model of what we should not do, what we should not say to a person who is going through intense suffering and grief. Now last time I gave you my opinion, the best thing these men could have done after sitting with Job in silence for seven days would have been to keep their mouths closed and then to get up off the ash heap and go back where they came from. The best counseling work that was done in these chapters was done in the first seven days when their mouths remained shut. And although these men start off their speeches with good intentions, they end up doing far more harm than good by wounding Job with words that are unfair with words that are unkind, with words that are ungodly. There's much that we can criticize here in the speeches of Job's friends, and we're going to do that in just a minute. But before we dwell on the hurtful and the destructive part of what they have to say, I want to point out the fact that not everything these men say to Job is wrong and unbiblical and off-base. In fact, if you read through all of these speeches throughout the middle part of Job, if you read them carefully and thoughtfully and biblically, you will be surprised to discover plenty of truth in what these guys are saying. Plenty of good, sound theology that we find elsewhere in God's holy and inspired Word. 
however crass, however unlikable these men may be, they are speaking to Job from a conviction that is basically right and true. The conviction that God is completely just. The conviction that God rules the world with perfect justice and holiness and righteousness. A Christian could argue with that. We serve a God, brothers and sisters, that rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness. We serve a God that blesses obedience and a God that curses disobedience. Have a look with me at what Eliphaz says in his opening speech beginning in chapter 4, verse 8. The first statement of a principle that will be repeated over and over again throughout the book. Eliphaz says there, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. And then in the next chapter, chapter 5, he goes on to say, Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You see, the theology that permeates these lengthy speeches of Job's friend is a theology that is true in its core conviction. That God is just. That God is the judge of all the earth who will do what is right. And so before we criticize these men, I think we need to give credit where credit is due. There is a great deal of truth in these speeches that we find expressed in other parts of God's Word. A principle I'm going to refer to this morning as the principle of divine retribution. It's a principle that says, what you reap you will sow. It's the idea that effects can be traced back to certain causes. That's a biblical principle. It's sound theology. For example, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were warned by God about the consequences of disobedience. And when they disobeyed God, they had to face a disastrous outcome. They were exiled from the Garden Paradise. A little later on in the Bible, we see God making a covenant with Israel, warning them of what the consequences will be if they break their promises and go their own way. That's why in Deuteronomy 28, we find a list of blessings that will result from Israel's obedience, another list of cursings that will result from Israel's disobedience. And indeed, throughout Israel's history, we see that pattern of cause and effect holds true. When Israel blesses and obeys God, they experience divine blessing. When Israel disobeys God, they face discipline, cursing, even exile from the promised land. Fast forward to Psalm chapter 1, the psalm we read at the beginning of the service, and this same principle of retribution is there on the page staring at us. The righteous man will be like a tree planted by rivers of water who brings forth fruit in his season. The wicked man will be like the chaff that the wind drives away. You find it also in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 28.10, He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. Unless we think this principle is restricted to the Old Testament, I draw your attention to Paul's words in Galatians 6, verse 7, where he writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Or how about 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, where Paul says, God will repay with affliction those who afflict you and will give relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, they are immediately punished and struck down by God. 
When the Corinthian church abuses the Lord's Supper, some of them start getting sick and some even die in an act of retribution against their sin. And so, brothers and sisters, the principle of retribution that these men keep hammering over and over to Job is not completely out of left field. Much of what they say here in these chapters has the ring of biblical truth that reflects what we read in other parts of God's Word. And so before we rip into these guys for their insensitivity, let's at least acknowledge there's truth in what they're saying. They are motivated in part by a zeal for God's name. They believe quite rightly God is completely just. God is completely good. God is completely righteous in everything He does. Now that doesn't excuse what they say to Job, but it does help us understand why they say the things that they do. These men have a high view of God. And unlike many people in our world today who feel at liberty to attack God's sovereignty, to attack God's holiness, to attack God's justice, these men have a reverence and a respect for God that is really quite commendable. But clearly, as we make our way through the speeches in the book of Job, we discern quickly that something is terribly wrong in the way that these men are applying biblical principles to Job's specific case. Their theology, their convictions may be good and true at the core, but sadly, their application of that theology is bad and cruel and destructive. What these men have done is to take a good principle and to make it into an ultimate principle. To take a biblical principle and and to apply it in an unbiblical way. You see, it's true, it's biblical to say that God will ultimately punish the wicked, but it's false to reason from that truth that every example of suffering in the world is a direct form of divine punishment. That's where these guys have gone wrong. Not so much in the principle of retribution itself, but in their application of the principle. Yes, it's true, sometimes we do suffer the direct consequences of our own sin. Yes, sometimes we do suffer the consequences directly from unwise choices we make in this life. I think we all understand that. If you don't look both ways before you cross the street, there's a pretty good chance you'll get hit by a car. If you don't get into the habit of eating healthy food, there's a good chance that you will suffer with health problems down the road. If you cheat on your spouse, there's a good chance that your marriage will fall apart. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, there's a good chance that you'll go to jail. If you don't study for your exam, there's a good chance that you'll flunk. You see, sometimes it's very easy, it's very straightforward for us to trace negative consequences to their root cause, but that is not always the case. Because the fact of the matter is, not everyone who gets hit by a car was disobeying traffic laws. And not every person who has a heart attack neglected their health. And not every person who goes through a divorce was at fault in their marriage. And not everyone who ends up in jail was guilty of a crime. And not everyone who flunks out of school was a slacker. You know, the same thing is true when it comes to God's punishment of our sin. There are times, brothers and sisters, when God will discipline us for sins we've committed, sometimes very severely. There are many other times when we suffer because of the sins that other people commit. And there are many other times we suffer simply because we live in a world that is broken and fallen and groaning and longing for God's redemption and restoration. And so while it's true to say God will ultimately punish sin, God will ultimately bring the wicked to justice, it is false to conclude from that that every single difficulty we go through in this life is punishment for something we've done to offend God. 
And that is the misstep Job's friend make in these speeches. Taking good theology about God's justice, God's righteousness, and applying that principle in a way that is incredibly cruel and harmful, and yes, even sinful. We know from the earlier chapters in the book of Job, Job has done absolutely nothing wrong to merit divine punishment. Job's friends have not been permitted to peek behind the heavenly curtain. The only explanation that these men can come up with to explain Job's suffering is that God is punishing him for sin. And that's where things start to get really ugly. I mean, imagine telling a parent who's just tragically lost their children that the death of the children was God's punishment for their sin. It's almost unthinkable to say something so cruel, something so inhumane, but that's precisely what Bildad says to Job in the passage we read earlier. Chapter 8, verses 3-4. to Does God pervert justice, Job? Does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He's delivered them into the hands of their transgression. Or consider the words of Zophar in chapter 11, verse 6, when he tells Job, God exacts of you, Job, less than your guilt deserves. In other words, you had it coming, Job. Your punishment isn't as bad as it should have been. But certainly the most cruel and insensitive words spoken come from the lips of Eliphaz in chapter 22, verse 5, when he begins to dream up a list of sins that he thinks Job may have committed and refuses to confess. Just listen to this. Is not your evil abundant, Job? Is there no end to your iniquities? For you've exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You've stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You've withheld bread from the hungry. You've sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you in darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. So convinced are Job's friends that, that God is punishing him for sin, they throw out all kinds of wild and fanciful accusations, heaping misery upon misery, almost driving this poor man to despair. His wife has already told him to curse God and die, and now his closest friends are beating him mercilessly with a big theological stick. And there is absolutely no sensitivity, there is absolutely no mercy, no love in what they say. Little wonder that Job eventually calls them worthless physicians, miserable comforters. Little wonder that Job eventually reaches his limit and cries out in despair in chapter 19, how long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words these ten times you've cast reproach upon me? Are you not ashamed to wrong me? I think many of us here used to sing that song when we were kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never harm me. Reality is it's not true. Words do hurt us. Words can crush us. Sometimes words even hurt us more than sticks and stones. We carry the scars of words around with us for our entire lives. That's why the New Testament book of James calls our tongue a restless evil that is full of deadly poison. And so, brothers and sisters, one lesson that we need to take away from this part of God's Word is a renewed awareness of how much damage we can do by the words we speak. Words can make a person. Words can break a person. What's clear from God's Word is that our Father in Heaven wants us to use our words to build others up and not to tear down. 
And even in those times when we need to share a difficult truth with someone who has started to wander off the right path, let's make sure we always speak the truth of God's Word with an attitude of love and grace and humility. Because as we're going to see later on in chapter 42, God is not at all pleased and impressed with the word these men speak against Job and the way that they have misrepresented Him. Good intentions, strong convictions never justify ungodly, ungracious speech. And may God forgive us for the times that we've spoken to others the way that Job's friends spoke to him. Another important lesson that we need to take away from this text. It is possible for good theology to go bad. That might sound a bit strange at first, but it's true. Good theology becomes bad theology when we take a truth from God's Word and apply it in the wrong way. That's what Job's friends have done here in these middle chapters. And believe me, it's a lot easier to do than you may think. For example, it is possible for us to take the biblical truth that we are saved by grace alone and not by works and then to wrongly conclude from that starting point that good works don't matter in the Christian life. Or maybe to conclude from that starting point that God doesn't expect a true Christian to pursue a lifestyle of holiness and righteousness. That's an example of good theology gone bad. God's Word is clear. Even though we're not saved by good works, we are saved unto good works. Let me give you another example. We could take the biblical truth of God's sovereignty and man's salvation, the doctrine of election, and conclude from that doctrine that we do not need to evangelize other men and women because God will take care of it Himself. There's another example of good theology gone bad. And if you think this morning that the theological mistake committed by Job's friends is simply a footnote in ancient history, let me tell you that this poisonous theology is still alive and well in the 21st century. The poorly applied theology of Job's miserable comforters lives on today in the sermons and the books of prosperity preachers. It can be found on the shelves of almost any Christian bookstore today. It's the teaching that says that God will reward you with wealth and with health, with an easy, trouble-free life if you give money to the church, if you pray to God with enough faith, if you walk steadfastly in the will of God. This modern day prosperity message that is so popular, so prevalent here in North America is almost indistinguishable from the theology that Job's friends are speaking to him. You know something? The more that I studied history, the more that I dig into God's Word, the more I come to realize there's really nothing new under the sun. Brothers and sisters, we need to be very discerning in these days and to know clearly what the Word of God teaches about the blessing of God and the punishment of God. And we also need to be very careful whenever we are studying and teaching God's Word to make sure that we allow one part of God's inspired Word to interpret every other part. Not to do what the cults do, not to do what the false teachers do, which is to rip one little part of the Scripture and to apply it in a way that contradicts the entire message of the Bible, the entire mission of Christ. If we want to avoid the error of Job's friends, we must allow Scripture to be its own interpreter, or else we will end up taking good theology and turning it into bad theology that will misrepresent God and will do more harm than good whenever we apply the Word of God. We spent some time looking at the advice of Job's counselors. I want to turn now to make a few concluding remarks about Job's response. 
What's incredible about Job throughout this whole ordeal is that he stubbornly maintains his integrity in the face of opposition from the people he loves. First of all, from his wife who tells him to curse God and die, and now from his friends who insist that he needs to repent from some unknown sin. Job's friends have relentlessly pressed him to come clean and repent with the goal that God will forgive him and restore all that he's lost. If you read the speeches carefully, you will discover prosperity, health, financial restoration is really what these guys are most concerned about. What I find remarkable about Job, he never once in all of these chapters asked God to restore his property and his health. Not once. You and I might think that would have been the top priority on Job's list to regain everything that he's lost, to get all of his stuff back. It's not there in the text. And here's why. Job was not nearly as brokenhearted about losing his health and earthly possessions as he was about losing a close relationship with God. That's what bothers Job more than anything else. The fact that the God he loved so much seems so distant, so far removed, so unconcerned. So in chapter 9, verse 11, Job laments the feeling of abandonment and cries out, Behold, He passes me by and I see Him not. He moves on and I do not perceive Him. Again in chapter 23, he says something similar beginning in verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept His way. I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my portion of food. I think these words give us such a glimpse into the inner workings of Job's heart, helping us to see here is a man who loves God more than he loves God's gifts. Here is a man who wants God more than he wants God's stuff. And grieved as Job is by the distance that he thinks has come between himself and God, he is absolutely unwilling to compromise his integrity by confessing to sins that he did not commit. Job knows beyond doubt he is innocent of wrongdoing. He will not give in to the advice of his wife or his friends. He will not curse God and die. He will not try to manipulate God in order to get all of his stuff back. And you know something? By maintaining his in integrity in that stubborn and dogged way, Job is actually proving that Satan's original accusation way back in the opening chapters was dead wrong. You recall from the beginning of our study, Satan smugly suggested that righteous people only worship God because of His protection and blessing, but Job has been showing throughout this whole ordeal a truly righteous person values God and sees God as the greatest treasure of all. What Job truly wants is not the restoration of his property. What he truly wants is not prosperity and material blessing. What he wants is vindication. He wants relationship with God. He wants God to vindicate him, to defend him against the false accusations of his friend. He wants an opportunity to plead his case before God. And so much of the imagery we find in Job's speeches is the imagery of a courtroom. He wants God to testify in His defense. He wants God the sovereign judge to proclaim Him to be innocent of wrongdoing. Because Job values righteousness more than prosperity. 
Because Job values God more than he values God's gifts. And I believe, brothers and sisters, this is one of the greatest lessons you and I can take away from the example of this Old Testament saint that we might value and treasure God more than we value His blessings and His gifts. We would worship and obey God not because of what God can do for us, but simply because He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. What also becomes clear as we study Job's response to the friends, he has a far better understanding of divine retribution and reward than they do. Unlike his friends, Job understands the principle of sowing and reaping. He believes that that principle is true. Chapter 12, verse 3, for example, Job says to his friends, I have understanding as well as you do. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? See, Job understands these things. He agrees with the truth his friends are speaking. But he also acknowledges what his friends will not. And sometimes the wicked do seem to prosper in this life. Sometimes the righteous do suffer unjustly. Job understands life on earth is not always fair. And in chapter 21, he will directly challenge his friend's understanding of retribution and reward, suggesting that there must be more to the story. Why do the wicked live, Job asked. Why do they reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. No rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to the grave. Job is in touch with reality. His friends are not. Because sometimes life isn't fair. Sometimes bad things do happen to righteous people. Sometimes God's justice is not served in this life. You know, as I read and I studied these speeches over and over again this week, I came to the conclusion there is one key difference between Job's outlook and the outlook of his friends. Job's friends are completely unable to see beyond the present life, but Job understands that there is life after death. Job understands that God's vindication, God's justice may have to wait until the afterlife. For Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, this fleeting life on planet earth is all that they can see, all that they can conceive. But Job understands that there is life beyond the grave. Job understands there will be vindication after death. Chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, he expresses hope for justice in the afterlife. He says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol or the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal shall come. And then in chapter 19, we read these wonderful words that many of us are familiar with. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Brother and sister in Christ, you and I may be called at times to endure injustice and suffering and hardship here on planet earth, but aren't you happy and aren't you grateful this morning? This world of brokenness and suffering and pain isn't all that there is. There is real hope beyond the grave. 
Aren't you grateful this morning, Christian believer? We have a glorious Redeemer named Jesus Christ who suffered the ultimate injustice on Calvary's cross. Who died for all of our sins so that we who believe might be pure and clean in the eyes of a holy God so that we might see this God one day in our flesh so that we might live forever in His kingdom as dearly loved sons and daughters. Job lived 2,000 years ago before the arrival of the Redeemer, but he had hope in his heart that God would provide someone to vindicate him and to plead his case. Job had the hope of resurrection in his heart. And if you know Jesus Christ this morning, the truth is that Job's Redeemer is your Redeemer. You and I might not see justice fully served here in this life, in this world, but don't be dismayed, friends. A better world is on the way. A world with no sin a world with no suffering, a world with no brokenness and no pain. And if you want to be resurrected to live in that world one day, if you want to live in that kingdom, there is only one road that will get you there. You must entrust your life to this Redeemer. You must receive Him as Savior and Lord. You must cast yourself fully upon His grace and mercy. You must place all of your hope upon Him and His promises. Job, like us, was not a perfect man. Job sinned in his suffering. There are times here in these speeches he crosses the line into ungodly, even into blasphemous speech. Job is a sinner like you and me. He's going to have to repent of those sins later on. But through all of the good and the bad and the ugly, Job maintains hope in his heart that the God he loves will not let him down. God will bring ultimate justice. The Redeemer will plead his case. Job's faith and hope was in the Redeemer to come. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you have a hope and a promise that will see you through any trial, any hardship that you can possibly face in this life. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Amen.